Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm excited about the guest today because he is someone that has gone through the full cycle as a founder himself. So I guess without further ado, Reggie Agarwal, welcome to the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Alejandro. So let's just say rewind back and do a little bit of a walk through memory lane here, Reggie. So your parents emigrated from India. So uh, and you and you were born and raised in, in Virginia. Is that right? Or where were you born and raised? Well, I was actually born in Manhattan, uh, but my father chose the wrong Manhattan because it was Manhattan, Kansas. So um, <laughs> I was, my parents immigrated here. They moved to Manhattan. The good news is after I was born there, I think we doubled the Indian population because there were many Indians in Manhattan. Uh, I was born in 1969. Okay. Got it. Got it. So, so then you went to that Manhattan, and how was how was life, um, you know, growing up there, and before you actually went to school? Because I, I see that you went to University of Virginia. So, um, so walk walk us walk us myself and also the listeners as to you know how was life all the way until going to the University of Virginia. Sure. So I was yeah, as I mentioned, I was born in Kansas, lived there for a few years. My father got his master's uh, in mechanical engineering, uh, pretty typical for you know a lot of Indian immigrants immigrated in the in the sixties. And lived there a few years, and he kind of bounced around a lot the, 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 around the U.S. Uh, following jobs. So we lived in uh, California, New Jersey, Ohio. We've lived in about seven different or eight different cities. Uh, and finally, when I was like uh, eight or nine years old, we settled in the Washington area. So, you know, I call Washington home. And so kind of went to the local high school there in, in, in Washington in, in a place called Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, from 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 high school, I went to University of Virginia, which some people might be familiar with because we just won the NCAA championship the other day. Uh, nice. But but uh, I was a finance major there. And then after I graduated from college, I made the unusual decision because back then, uh, again, this is 1991. You know, when you're when you're from Indian immigrant parents, you kind of have two options. Option one is to be a doctor. Or option two is to be an engineer. So I kind of shocked the system when I said I wanted to be a lawyer. And I ended up going to law school and, uh, you know, kind of uh, went to law school for a few years and started practicing law in the Washington area. Got it. And, and you went to um, the, um, the law firm that you went to is Pillsbury, Withrop, Sean and Pittman. So is Correct. that got it. And you were doing M&A stuff? Yeah, I was a corporate lawyer there. So I did from M&A to IPO to technology transactions. 
Um, that kind of got me excited about this the space because I was in uh, in uh, Tyson's Corner, which was kind of for the Virginia DC area. That's considered the the the, the, the you know the Silicon Valley of of the of the Washington DC area is definitely Tyson's. So my customers were all tech companies, and I got to know a lot of CEOs and stuff. And um, that kind of got my, you know, got me into technology because I was, you know, my my background was finance. And yeah. um, and so that was kind of what was helpful to getting introduced to the technology scene. And and just out of curiosity, I mean, you you have a very similar background to myself. So, you know, we're we're both recovering lawyers. Yeah. But why 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 do you think, Reggie, that people say that typically lawyers turned entrepreneurs, they don't do so well? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I have strong views on it. So what I, I'll tell you some experiences is the first one is when you go to law school, um, it actually teaches you not to be a team. It doesn't, it doesn't teach you team skills. It teaches you actually individual. So there's two things about lawyers. One is it's very academically driven. So it doesn't matter about any activities you have. Look, you know, look I was very involved in, in my university. For example, I was the student body vice president at UVA. And when I applied to law school, they don't really care because they just want to know what your LSAT is and your GPA. Not that they don't look at some of that stuff. But unlike, let's say, MBA schools where they weigh other stuff beyond your academics. So that's one. So lawyers tend to be very studious and, you know, very high academics, which is, you know, no one should apologize for that. But that's number one. Number two, that when you're in law school, it's an environment where it's very single performance. Uh, I mean, uh, individual performance. When I was in at UVA, when I was in the undergrad business school, 60 percent of my grades were based on team projects. And you very quickly learn how to work with teammates which includes the basic skill sets you learn later as a CEO, which is pick the smartest people and the best people in the group, and you'll do well in your grades um, yeah. because it's a team effort. And it teaches you a different skill set. And I learned a lot of lessons from, from college because in law school, uh, I remember I was trying to get a group together to, to, to do some stuff for, for classes. And it was tougher because people are, are more individually uh, performance-based, and that's their mentality. So I think when you come out of law school, it teaches you a different set of skills and um, so when you go start a business, it's actually not necessarily the skills you learn in law. Now, that doesn't mean that the law doesn't teach you some great things like analytical skills, how to write well. You know, it's a hard working ethic, very hard working ethic. There's some definitely positives, but there's some there's some contradictions there that you have to get through to, to grow your business that you may not learn those skills in, in being a lawyer. So so I guess uh, in this case, and, and we're going to we're going to talk about your entrepreneurial journey in just a bit and we'll go into detail. But but how would you say that perhaps having that legal background has has helped you in in, in your professional career more yeah, on the so, business side? So here's what I'll tell you. Um, look, do, a lot of people say there's a you know, hey, law must have been a big reason why you're where you are. And look, anything you do where you where you have a hard work ethic, where you learn to be analytical, where you learn to have goals and achieve them, learn to be more professional, learn to interact with customers, or or you know, doesn't mean again as a as a lawyer, you still interact certainly with your colleagues and you interact with customers a lot. So I'm not, again, I want to stress you do lose skill sets there. So I think all those things helped me. Probably the biggest thing, though, that helped me was when you're a lawyer, you do tend to, you have your confidence levels higher, I believe, because you know, you're just, you're just, you just know things about, for example, I advise entrepreneurs as a young person. And so then I got to see the insides of, how a CEO thought or how a CFO thought, how a general counsel thought. And it just made you more comfortable um, with the way corporate America works because you're getting exposure, even though it's a legal side. And of course, as a, as a corporate lawyer, your goal is to not get into litigation. So I didn't do any litigation. I just focused on 
your frankly your general transactions like contracts and 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 um, and uh, you know partnership agreements and if they went public or if they bought an acquisition. So you, you learned kind of some general corporate things that I think were helpful, and it, it made you feel comfortable and confident when you went into your own business a little bit more than if I didn't have that experience. Of course, and I think that being on the on the transactional side as a lawyer too, like doing M and A's and and all these financing rounds and stuff like that, drafting up the agreements and seeing things coming to fruition, you also get to um, a really capture that pattern recognition on, on what makes things click and what makes things also bl blow up the deals or have deals not even happening. So what were you seeing, let's say, on, on the founders that really were able to, to drive things to the finish line? Yeah, so, you know, here's the first thing. I learned a lot of lessons when I did venture capital deals. And I'll just tell you, that it starts with some fundamental things. The first fundamental is, is that your, your equity, the way you structure your equity. So for the new entrepreneurs, it is so important to make sure you realize, I'll just tell you two lessons. The first one is founder or no founder. I mean, if you have a group of you, you make sure you vest equity because what happens if three people start a company and after one year, someone leaves, they own a third of the company and they leave, they still own a third of the company. And then the other founders are dying saying, we're working we're busting our butt uh, 80 hours a week, and this person owns a third of the company, and we're working basically for them. So that that could literally tear a company apart, and I've seen it happen. Uh, there's a lot of emotional, you know, a lot of emotional damage happens when one of the partners leaves and they still own their shares. So you should do something like a vest even on founders if you're a group of you, because circumstances change. Like it takes longer to build your business, and one person says, "Hey, I can't work for a very low salary. I have a family," and that's fair. But you should own your equity, and then that creates a lot of, lot of damage. And that's what I'll tell you is one of the biggest reasons companies explode because they can't get it through that emotional, it's a very emotional thing. The second thing that I'll tell you is that people tend to give up their equity way too much too early. So look, candidly, if you start a company with four people, you've just given away 75% of the equity where six months later, you can hire the same person for one or 2%. And that crushes a business because you've already given away your equity so as you grow your business, you don't have any equity to give up because you dilute down to a very little amount. And so that's the second lesson I learned as an example. And those ones you know, were very important lessons where I think a lot of companies go bankrupt or don't make it through even when they have a great idea and a great team just because of those two reasons. So that's an example of things that you learn as a lawyer to see the negatives that happen. So you're not so everything's great. When you start a company, you're, 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 you're excited, you're confident, nothing can stop you. You're going to build a billion-dollar business, and we all believe that when we start a company. Otherwise, we wouldn't risk so much to do it, but, but people don't look at the downside. Being a lawyer teaches you better look at the downside because that's actually the most likely scenario. And, yeah. you see and, and also, you see the nightmare stories, so you get to really exactly. you know, see things and say, I absolutely don't want this for myself, but, but I actually agree with you on that because – if you don't structure things right, let's say like with a four-year vesting and a two-year cliff, which is you know what I think it's fair nowadays. Exactly right. The, the problem is that you get the free riders. So if you want to build a hyper-growth business and you have someone that you've given, let's say, 25 to 50% of the equity, if they leave, then investors are going to be like, I don't want to just finance the remaining 50%. So it's a, it's a problem. It really is. And, and, uh, and so I think there's so many lessons from a legal side that I've seen that or broken M&A deals. Or, or venture capital deals that go bad because the you know they the, the entrepreneur didn't didn't frankly read the details and realize because they're entrepreneurs frankly they're built to be optimistic. If I if I would say one of the biggest lessons I learned is you always have to do what I call sensitivity analysis, which is 
show the best case, worst case, and the base scenario and almost anything you do. And you do need a worst case on any major decision. And so a lot of what you do in life is if you just do that, then it, you will automatically say, well, what happens worst case scenario? If, if, if Mary, you left me as my business partner, what happens? So if you just realize that that's a worst case scenario, then you would protect against it. And so you do that in anything you do in, in, in starting your business or frankly growing it. And in these lessons treat are, are good lessons learned. And it's just sometimes helpful to, to have seen it and seen the emotions. Look, I've seen brothers, two brothers start a business, things didn't work out. And not only did the business fail, um, but their personal relationship is obviously gone. And it's just interesting to see that what a business, a startup can do to tear friends and people apart when circumstances change. So that's that's just some examples of yeah. things that I've learned. Oh, I hear you. And those are great pointers, great pointers. And then the um, you also, during this time, at the same time, uh, in parallel to your uh, duty as an attorney, you founded the uh, CEO Tech Council. So I guess this this taught you the Indian CEO te Tech Council. So I guess this taught you one thing or two about networking. Is that right? Yeah. So here's a few things. So what I did is basically in 1996, again, the technology community was very sleepy. Uh, people were not connected at all. And you certainly didn't have the technology and the tools you have now. So back then, it was the old-fashioned way. You pick up the phone and call people. Cell phones were barely out. Email was barely out. And so basically, what I did is um, I I got to know a lot of CEOs through through a variety of my legal profession. I was also the president of, a, of another business association. And so I got to meet people. And what I saw is that people didn't know each other. So I started an organization for CEOs who were Indian. So it was called the Indian CEO Technology Council. And basically in the Washington area, I just got anyone who was Indian, who was a CEO of a company, you had to have at least 10 million in revenue and 75 employees, or have raised 10 million in venture capital, which is a lot, of, which is a lot now. But back in 96, 97, that was huge, right? And so yeah. basically got a good group of folks. There were a lot of Indian folks that didn't realize how big the community was. And personally, it was great because we started getting coverage. Um, a lot on the community, people started realizing the impact on the business community that Indians were making, which was prideful for me as an Indian. But but frankly, we got people together and we were about 20 of us, 15 of us in the beginning, and then we grew to 75 and then eventually we grew to 150. And once we got 150, we basically got every CEO in Washington who was running a substantial company in the, in the more in the technology area. Uh, not 100% of our members, but let's call it 90% were in tech. And so uh, it was a great experience for me to get to know CEOs. And I'll tell you the lesson I learned there. The lesson I learned there is, is that, you know, and look, a lot of people look up to CEOs and think they're something special. I realized they weren't. They were no different than me. And frankly, they just did something like maybe they took a high risk. Maybe they were very persistent. Whatever their attributes were, I saw a commonality. And especially with Indians, I was like, man, these people, for most of the members, this was their, their second generation, uh, our first generation. They moved here when they were 21 or something. So they didn't speak the language great. They weren't necessarily inspiring and super articulate. They didn't have a lot of money and they weren't connected. So, and they had a family because a lot of them moved here families and they somehow built great businesses. And the lesson I learned there is they built it because one, they were willing to take high risk, but B, they were persistent and consistent and they just never gave up. That's what I saw the common attribute. It wasn't being super smart. So I knew a lot of them, frankly, weren't that smart. How did I know that? Because I worked with a lot of them. I mean, you can just tell if they're really smart. And it doesn't mean they weren't intellectually smart, but they weren't necessarily super savvy business people. But yet they succeeded. And it's because of taking risk and being persistent and consistent and believing and being patient. So I learned those lessons. I got to know so many CEOs. And that's why I had a very, I was very lucky 
to be brought up in an environment to know so many CEOs. So when I started to start my company, I wasn't scared because I was able to see all these people and said, hey, if that person can do it, I can do it. So that was kind of an interesting experience for me. Well, you definitely learned the lesson of persistence and, and patience because you've been with your company now for 19 years and counting. But, yeah. but we're going to go into detail now. How was the, um, the, uh, the incubation process of Cvent and, and, and how did that happen? Like, were you seeing, like, as a lawyer, uh, all these different founders that you were working with, like, changing the world? And here you were pushing paper behind a desk and you said, I, I, I must have a bigger life purpose than this. How did, how did the, uh, the incubation of the idea happen? So, so, so Alejandro, I think a lot of us, um, for me, I was always very entrepreneurial since I was a kid. I always, you know, ran, uh, I ran a paint company. I ran a lawn care service, you know, obviously snow removal, which a lot of entrepreneurs have all done when they're young. I did literally everything and I rarely worked for other people. I was always very entrepreneurial. So I kind of had that bug, but I went to be a lawyer because it was a good, great, steady career. And it was prestigious, frankly. And so I did that. What I realized when I was doing it is very entrepreneurial. So one is I run a lot of business as a young lawyer, but and I try to work in the confines of a law firm. But what I realized is where I really got excited when I was growing the ADNCO at Tech Council. That was, you know, I, that was where a lot of my passion was, and that it got me excited. That really got me excited to see that thing grow in something that I built. So that was kind of number one. What gave me the idea was simple. And and the idea really came from when I started running the ADNCO at Tech Council. Um, I was organizing 15, 20-person events. We eventually grew to over 2,000 members, and we expanded it to beyond Indians because, like a good marketer, once we got 100% market share, we have to increase our TAM. So what we do is we let in anyone. You didn't have to be Indian. So we grew to several thousand, and we became, frankly, you know, the, the, the largest CEO networking group in the East Coast at the time uh, by far. And so basically we started having five, 600 CEOs slash what we call CXOs, CFOs and so forth, CTOs come to the events. And it forced me to start manually doing all this. And it was, I was going crazy. I was working 80 hours or 60 hours a week as a corporate lawyer. I was actually getting my post-law degree, which I noticed that you have, my LLM at Georgetown. And then I was running the Indian CEO at Tech Council. And I was doing all three of those things at once. And I was going crazy. And I was working about 30 to 40 hours a week on these nonprofit organization that I started. Wow. And really what ended up happening is, is that being around entrepreneurs was one thing, but you have to have an idea. And my idea came from running the Indian Side Tech Council, so painful organizing these events that I found the pain point, which is these events. And I decided I needed to create the aspirin. And that's what gave, that's how we started, you know, Cvent. And I started the company because I found that pain point and I was the customer. I knew that was a real pain because I was an event planner. I was the secretary, the meeting planner and the president of the organization. And so then in my tools were Excel, Outlook, and yellow sticky notes. That's how I organized events, and that wasn't good enough. And then so I said, I'm gonna create Cvent to automate this. So that's how I kind of started the business. So then so then here you have this frustration, and uh, you start incubating this and, and figuring out how to make it uh, a little bit more efficient when it comes to uh, managing those events. Walk us through the immediate events that happened before and to the point that you handed your uh, notice to, to leave the firm to your managing partner there. Yeah. So that's what you just brought up is the most critical thing. So you first got a, you got an idea, you know, you, you have to find a pain point and you got to create the aspirin to solve it. Done. I got the idea. Then you have to have the confidence to do it. And let me tell you what most people do. Cause I mentor so many entrepreneurs. I've just been in business for 20 years and I'm so involved in the entrepreneur community is that most people never quit their job. 
they do it part-time. And when I always tell people, then you got guys like me, they're going to quit their job, work 100 hours a week, and put everything I own into the business, and you're not going to be able to compete against someone like me or these other entrepreneurs that just go all in. It's You have to go all in. And so now, did I do it immediately? The answer is no. I took three or four months uh, to, to gather a team. Um, there is the, the first person that I, that I, that, that one of my business partners was a guy named Dave Quattrone, who's the CTO of the company and co-founder. So I, when I started the business, um, I had the idea and I met, I, I, I and, and I wasn't a technologist. So Dave was a, a technology person. He was a developer, um, but a, very bright because he went to Wharton for his undergrad business degree, got his engineering degree. So he had a little bit of everything, but he was a developer. So I needed someone to, to compliment me because I was more sales and marketing and whatever other areas that I think I had more strengths in, but I didn't know technology deeply because I wasn't an engineer. So he was the first person. So at first you got to, first you got to believe in the business. You got to start recruiting a team and you got to quickly, frankly, put all in. And that's where I think actually most people fail once they have the idea, then they don't execute because they don't go all in. They try to say, Oh, I got to build this business, work my job. And once the business brings in more revenue than my job, then I'll quit. And yeah. most people never get to that, or it takes three years. And if it takes three years, someone else already got your idea, and they're already building it. So well, that ideas, ideas are, Reggie, like buses. You just got to get yourself in the bus and, and as quickly as you can and close the door. And you really do. And look, here's what I'll tell people. When you start a business, there are a lot of benefits if you fail. You learn a lot of lessons. And sometimes, you know, you're, 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 you're like, I love hiring failed entrepreneurs. And it's okay to be failed because I see that they appreciate how hard it is to build a business. And that they have that gumption in them, and they've learned a lot. You learn more on the way down than you when you way than you learn on the way up. But either way, I, I found the pain point. I was committed to doing it. I was fortunate to have parents that were supportive because I lived at home after law school. I didn't uh, get my own place. I decided to move back, to, you know, home because I'm close to my parents. Thought I was going to live there a year, um, but I ended up living there for. <laughs> I was what we, you know, what I call the Indian George Costanza because I was there until I was like 35 years old. In <laughs> place. Uh, I love it. And so but that, what that gave me is flexibility, even though oddly, when you're living with your parents, you get some a little bit more guardrails. Even at 30 years old, you have a little bit more guardrails. Yeah. But the positive, it gave me freedom, financial freedom, where I didn't have a lot of expenses and I put everything I owned into the company. Got it. Makes 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 complete sense. So, so then what was the uh, time where you told yourself, you know, because it's a big it's a big decision. I mean, I remember when I gave my, my notice as well at the firm and, and here I was in one of the best firms, you know, all of that stuff, but, but I was giving everything up for, for a dream. How was that day where, where you made the decision to really go after this? And how was the day where you gave your notice? So look, I'm a pretty, you know, just like you, I had a lot to lose because I went to law school, got my post-law degree practice for five years. So it's hard to give a nine-year career up um, and you're making good money as a corporate lawyer. So look, what I did is when I when I had the idea, I gathered a small team, and um, we didn't have funding. I was funding it myself um, out of my pocket, but it really came down to I, I I just believed in it, and I and I looked at it saying, what do I want to do twenty years from now? Do I want to frankly be a partner at a law firm? And the answer was no. That wasn't what I, I aspired to be. So it's pretty simple. Once I know I didn't want to get to that end game, then I knew that I should start the business. And and so it, 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 it look your heart flutters when you do it. You get scared. For me, it wasn't just I quit the job. Obviously, I planned for three or four months, getting other, uh, you know, some other folks analyzing the market, you know, making sure that I just talked to some, you know, other meeting planners and really made sure the pain point was there. And I just had a little bit of diligence. But at the end, you just got to jump off the cliff. And for me, you know, I, it was September 4th. It was right after Labor Day. 
Um, you know, I gave notice, you know, 30 days before because I wind up some of the businesses I was working with. But basically, I left and it, it was scared. But, you know, I, I, I knew that it was the right thing for me at the right at that time. And um, the reality is I didn't think it would have any I didn't even think of failure. I thought, well, this, of course, is obvious. I'm going to turn this into a billion dollar company in a few years. So this is an obvious thing to do. And that's the that that's the, that's that's your entrepreneur where they're so they believe so much. They're so passionate. But that's also the negative is that they tend not to look at the downsides and tend not to realize that, you know, things don't always go your way. And it always takes longer to build a business. And the reality is 95 percent of businesses fail. And out of the 5 percent that survive, most of them never really grow that much, you know, to become a large company. But none of that mattered to me because all I know is I found an idea and boy, was I going to make it happen? And that was my passion. And boom, it was the right logical thing for me to do. And I can imagine that as well, the conversation with your parents and moving back in, probably they thought you were crazy. Yeah, they did. They go, you want to be an event planner? You're a lawyer right now. I go, mom, I'm not going to be an event planner. I'm going to create event planning management tools, software tools. Yeah. And so anyways. And, and, and let me ask you this. I mean, for me, I remember when I when I made the switch from from law to, to tech, it was it was nerve wracking because I had no idea of how to code and no idea about tech. So so how was that switch for you? So let me be clear. I didn't code then. I don't code now. And so what I did, I'll just tell you one thing I learned is, and I'm sure you've learned this is, hey, I was good at certain skill sets. I was never going to be a coder, nor did I frankly aspire to be a coder. And that wasn't my DNA. And what's important for an entrepreneur to know is what your strengths and weaknesses are. So I've never even tried to code. And um, I, I don't I don't have any interest in doing it because I want to hire people that is their passion. Because I learned, follow your passion, you'll do pretty well if you just keep yourself in that. So that's when I told you one of my business partners, Dave, he was a hardcore technologist and, uh, uh, and he's still with, you know, we're still together today. And so um, he took care of the technology side. Uh, and so then really what happened is I described, it was, it was the old adage where when I tried to, you know, when I was talking to him, he said, can you show me your business plan? I'll have one is what I told him. because I was too busy running the Indian tech council, getting my post-law degree at night school and working at, at my, my firm. Um, and so when we got together, it was the proverbial write it on a napkin. And I literally said, here's my idea. Can you build it? And he's like, let me see. And then I didn't have much detail. I said, this is what I want because I'm feeling the pain point as an event planner. I want an event registration, event marketing system, blah, blah, blah. And then he started building it. And I started raising funds and getting customers, recruiting employees, getting office space, all the basic stuff that you do. And that's how we kind of, um, that's how I, you know, kind of ran the business. And then as we brought people in, you know, I brought hopefully what I call talented people. One thing we're very we're very unique in is that um, eight of my eleven original people that I recruited uh, twenty years ago almost are still with me today. So I was very lucky to find good people, and then you know we started scaling the business. So what did the founding team look like? So originally, like I said, Dave was the first one, and um, and um, then we there was another gentleman, a guy named Dwayne Sai, who joined. Uh, Dwayne was our, he was another technology guy that went to, Dave went to Penn undergrad and Dwayne went to Penn with him in engineering. So he kind of started setting up our infrastructure. One thing we were lucky is we were a cloud-based company in 99. So we were you know, one of the first few, uh, you know, not doing install software, which obviously no one does now, but in 99, there was almost no cloud companies. No one ever heard of it, but we decided that was a much easier way to do it. So internet operations and cloud-based operations became a big thing. So Dwayne focused on that. And then very shortly after that, a guy named Chuck, who's now our, who was our, uh, who was another lawyer, by the way, he, he was a guy who went to Duke 
So he lost at the NCAA tournament pretty bad this, this time. <laughs> but Chuck went to Duke, you know, went undergrad law. And then Chuck joined. He was a lawyer for five, you know, just like me. He practiced five, six years. And Chuck joined and he he started heading up um, our sales team. So now he's our president of sales and marketing. But he joined a few months after uh, we started. So that was kind of the original team. And um, and we just kind of started building the business and focusing on what our strengths were. And uh, we all stuck together. Um, uh, Dwayne uh, retired uh, about a year ago, so he was with us for about 18 years. Um, wow. But um, but the rest of the guys were still working hard and still still frankly working 60 hour weeks. <laughs> so, so that's amazing. So I guess for the for the listeners, what ended up being the business model behind this event? Yeah, it was simple. What we did is uh, it started in the beginning just simple. I was organizing events, and the key what I learned is how do you market to people to pack the house with the right people because I wanted only CEOs or CXOs. So is event marketing and then all the things around it, which is event management. And what that means is registering people and, um, you know, doing surveys, what do they want to hear post event reporting and that basic stuff. That was what we started in 2099. Um, but what it evolved to is much more bigger. So just a couple of interesting things is the event industry is the biggest industry you never heard of. Uh, $1 trillion US dollars will be spent on events in 2019 across the globe, one trillion. Put in perspective, that's bigger than the GDP of all the countries in the world, except 17 of them. <laughs> so it's a, yeah. it's so much money spent on meetings and events, so we just are automating it. And now we have all kinds of other tools, which I won't go deeply into, but basically we're automating the event industry from picking your hotel to registering, to marketing, to your on-site experience, like a mobile app. You know, And we do large conferences like, you know, like AWS is one of our big customers. We run AWS for 50,000 people all the way to a small nonprofit or a university or large corporations or small corporations around the globe. We're the largest player worldwide. Uh, we run now close to a million events a year. Really cool. Really cool. So so I guess I guess what were some of the um, early days like? Like what were some of the challenges that you guys were uh, dealing with? Well, we had lots of challenges. I mean, we really were. So, so here's what happened. So we're 1999, September, start the company, just a handful of us. Um, and, you know, again, I was paying for it and funding it out of my pocket. So if, when you write these checks for 50, 60 grand a month, it really hits you because I'd save a lot of money. My parents uh, gave me, the way I got my funding was I'd save money from living at home, you know, making a good salary as a corporate lawyer. I didn't take a salary for two and a half years after I started the company. So, but everything went into the company. My parents gave me, they both worked for the government. I'm a, I come from a middle-class family. Both my parents worked for the government for, you know, 25, 30 years. They gave me a quarter million dollars out of their 401k plan, which is a lot of money. Back then, it was even more money. And then finally, I put about $400,000 in my credit cards. I just literally applied for 15 credit cards at once in 99, got approved because I had a good, you know, my big corporate lawyer background. It gave me good credit before they could figure out that I applied for 15 credit cards within an hour or two of each other. I just spent it buying equipment because back then you had to actually buy, you know, servers and all that junk. You can't host it on AWS or or something like that, or Google Cloud. So um, very quickly raised money, uh, you know, through my parents, myself, and like I said, credit cards. Um, we were just five or six of us, and we were just going to kind of grow the business organically because I didn't want to dilute and raise venture capital. And then something happened. The dot-com boom was in full swing, and a billion dollars of venture capital went into our space, which was online event registration at the time. So a billion dollars went to all these companies, and mostly Silicon Valley, they're raising $50 million and so forth. And all of a sudden, these companies were 100, 200 people. And we're like, we're going to get slaughtered because we're six people. We got two or three technology people in business, and we're not going to develop their 60 developers or engineers. 
So we need to grow. So very quickly, we went from six people. We raised $17 million in funding at one time. And basically, it was from that whole technology CEO group. So I knew all the CEOs in the Washington area, and they were very gracious to support me. So from the president of NASDAQ to the CEO of uh, AOL to the CEO of Nextel, CEO of Nortel, we had all the big, you know, frankly, that what we call the technology glitterati from the Washington, D.C. area. I got all these CEOs, I got 130 of them to give me money. So it was a big pain, but I got 130 people to write me checks from 50,000 to hundreds of thousands. And we, boom, we, we, we were off to the races. And we quickly grew from six to 125 people in one year. So basically the first wow. six months, slow growth, common self-funded, then boom, after, because the dot-com boom, got to keep up with everyone, raised 17 million and grew to 125. And that's kind of what we did very quickly in 2000. Um, and things were going great. And that's kind of the beginning part. Um, yeah. And then I can tell you now the turn. <laughs> so what well, happened? Let's talk about the, the sure. bust, the dot-com bust. Yeah, so everything's going great. You know, raised 17 million, getting lots of coverage. We were covered by all kinds of media because I knew the media really well because they mean CEO. So we were on the front page of the Washington Post. We were in Forbes, USA Today. All kinds of stuff was written. We were, you know, the next big company. And uh, and then something happens. The, the perfect storm hit. Uh, the recession hit. September 11th hit. And reality hit. And we had spent all $17 million almost. We spent $16.6 million to grow to 125 people. And we grew a big, fat, $1.5 million revenue company. So all of a sudden we realized that we're gonna go bankrupt. And now it's 01, you can't raise money, it's a deep recession. And so we did the only thing we could do, which is we cut 80% of our staff. And by the way, we didn't do it in one layoff. It was over six months and that's really brutal when you keep telling your troops, hey, we're gonna do a layoff, but that's okay. Things will get better and they didn't. Then you do it again and you, you're frankly breaking your word yeah. because you're saying this is the last layoff and you really believe it. Because as an entrepreneur, you're built to believe you're not looking at the worst case scenario. And it, was until our last round that we really, we literally said, you know what, our revenues aren't going to grow that fast, and we're not going to raise money. So what do we need to be to be able to run this, you know, the ship without any positive stuff? And and so that's what we did. We cut eighty percent of our staff. We're down to twenty four people. I was, you know, I've never been knocked off my horse really because things have gone well for me in my life. But this is the first time I got knocked off my horse, and I literally didn't know which way was up and which way was down. But one thing I did know is I was a crappy entrepreneur because I blew through $17 million, built a, built a business that was one and a half million revenue and laid off a lot of people that were smarter than me. Um, and frankly, you know, it was a really bad scenario for us in 01. And I didn't even necessarily believe that we could change the world anymore because I started seeing what reality, you know, threw cold water on me. So that's that Reggie, Reggie, you, you were talking you were and I can imagine I mean you were talking earlier about how you know when you succeed you know everything looks great but when things are not going that well you really get to learn you really get to have breakthrough moments and I'm sure that for you guys I mean obviously you know this happened but but the business you know ended up having a nice outcome so I guess I guess for you you probably must have had like a really big breakthrough moment not only on the professional level but at a personal level too, no? So so walk us through through what happened. So look, I'll tell you personally and professionally. So let's talk professionally real quick. So we're down to 26 people. We have no funding. We can't raise funding um, because no one's giving it. And we did one big mistake. Our big mistake was, by the way, uh, we signed a long-term lease. We signed a five-year lease. And when we moved into this space, um, it was, um, we were 125 people at the time, or roughly that. We got space for 250 people. 
and we locked in a five-year agreement. So we had a million-dollar expense in rent, five-year. So all of a sudden, we, we just needed a million or two to help us survive, but no one would give it to us because all we do is go to paying our rent because we were only in the second year of a five-year deal. So we had basically a $4 million liability in rent. And so what happened is, is that just, just um, on, a, on a business level is, is that we couldn't meet our obligations on even basic things like rent. We cut down our payroll. We couldn't, you know, uh, it's hard to develop a product. We cut a lot of our tech people. We couldn't market it and so forth. But, you know, what we did is that my team stuck together. My, my original team um, kept believing. And, they, and I think a lot of reason I asked them why they stuck, I think a lot of it because they were just working. We were literally working 90, 100 hours a week, seven days a week, all the time. And this is all you you did. And so from a business level, we finally right-sized the company and we became realistic that it, it takes time to change people's behavior and to get software adopted in a new, new segment. And so the whole key thing was to survive. So that's the first thing from a business level. On a personal level, I was in really bad shape. You know, look, I, I like I said, I lost all our investors' money. Um, I tell this to people, going through personal tragedy is difficult. We've all have gone through that, but it's even tougher when the newspapers are writing about you. And that's what happened. The, the media turned on me. I had gotten so much great press, disproportionately positive press, uh, because again, I knew all the press because they would come to those Indian CEO events. So the Washington Post, which you can imagine in 01, there was no social media, there was no podcast, there was no really ways to do it except radio, TV, and newspaper. And the Washington Post had us on the front page about six times, if you believe it, because they just end up picking us on the way up. They're going to pick on you on the way down. That's what they chronicled our slow death. So to read that in the paper and people saying that you're not going to survive and that I wasn't a good entrepreneur, it's tough again to go through this. But when everyone's reading about it, you can imagine. And then everyone in town, I had 130 investors that were trying to chase me to get their money back. And these were my entire network. And I lost my family's money, my siblings' money, my friends' money, my contacts. So everyone was from work to the investors to people reading it. Uh, you know, I didn't even feel like getting out of bed. I, I, I was at home. I remember many times that my mom had to come say, listen, you got to get to work. You, 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 you got to, you're, you're the leader, you're the captain. You have to, 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 to show fearlessness. And I remember that because it was, you know, it's very emotionally difficult to get up when you're frankly crappy entrepreneur and you don't, you don't know what to do. So what was the turning point? Reggie? You know, I, I tell you a couple things. I think we all have hidden strength within us, and especially when you believe. And this is what I tell you the differentiator between most entrepreneurs. Look, the reality is most people would have given up. Um, they wouldn't have, have, have worked 100 hours a week, taken no salary, continued to put everything they had in there. Actually, my parents gave me a little bit more money to even continue to survive because I just was hoping we'd, we would turn. And this is when you, when you learn a few lessons, first about yourself and about people. So on a, first I'll learn about myself. So, look, I have an attitude where I just, I just don't see failure. And I didn't realize that. Because, again, I've never really been tested like this, but I just wasn't going to fail. But it wasn't for me. It's because of other people. So what I've learned is that people will let themselves down, but they won't let down other people. I'll tell you, 99% of the people will say, you know, let's say you're in college. You're like, oh, I have an exam. I won't study. But if you're on a team like, and your grades dependent on the teamwork, you'll show up to those meetings because other people are relying on you. And that's what I learned about people in college is that when you're in a group – they'll actually do well because they don't want to disappoint someone. So for me, I had a whole team depending on me, investors, customers. So it wasn't about me. It was about them. And so what I tell you is that you, you just say, I, 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 got, I got to literally go down with the ship to not just when it sinks, but to the bottom of the ocean. And that was kind of my attitude. I didn't really realize that, but that was just the way my DNA was. So I wasn't going to give up. And so I just worked harder. 
And I'm not going to even say necessarily smarter. Um, we learn things, but we learn to just do one thing, which is to, to just to realize that everything takes longer and you got to model out the worst case scenario. And then if you do that, your business will be a lot better off. So then you can't I, lose your passion. So I guess for you, Reggie, what was a point where you finally said, we're going to make it, we're going to survive? What was that well, day like? It's a great. I'll tell you the day it happened was, so we, we couldn't make our rent. We we're out of money. We couldn't almost make payroll. And I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, and I finally got one of our investors to give us a little bit of money. Um, but then um, we, in order to do that, I had to do some things. And one of them was cut our rent. So I went to our landlord and said, listen, we're paying you basically almost a million dollars a year. We're down to 26 people. We're going to go bankrupt. Here's our books. There's no point in us going bankrupt because half your building's empty already and no one's going to take the space up. So at least we can pay you some rent, like maybe a couple hundred thousand a year. And I remember the landlord said, well, we're not going to do that because if you miss your payment, we're going to, we're going to, and I'm going to get a little boring here, but accelerate the next four years. That's what all, all commercial real estate deals say that even today, that if you miss your rent and you get 30 days notice, if you miss that, they can accelerate all the rent you owe for the entire term. So we'd owe $4 million. And what went to my head is I laughed. I said, that's great. We're going to file for bankruptcy anyways. What's the point? You know, you're going to drive us to bankruptcy. You're going to collect nothing. And so finally the, the guy said, okay, I'll let you, I'll let you, um, I'll cut down your rent, but here's what I'm going to ask. You personally sign the lease, Reggie. You personally, because we're a C corp. You know, you don't personally sign anything. It's through your corporation, and 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 they can sue you oh. if if I don't make my rent, which back then became like a one point seven million dollar contract. And you imagine someone who hasn't got a salary in two and a half years, put everything into a company. I have no money, and what went through my head is, okay, I'll sign it. You know why? Because I'm going to go bankrupt anyways. What's the big difference? But then I realized if I go personally bankrupt, and you know this, Alejandro. As a lawyer, if you personally file for bankruptcy, none of the big firms would ever take me back. So not only was I going to fail as an entrepreneur, but then my plan B was to go back to being a corporate lawyer. I did pretty well there, but I couldn't go back to that because no one really would hire someone who's been out of the force for three years and file for personal bankruptcy, and not to mention the emotional damage it does to you to file personal bankruptcy. And so the, the landlord said, are you going to do it or not? So I went to my team, and I remember the night, and I said, listen, I'm going to get us out of our rent of a million and cut it down to like two or 250, which gives us a fighting chance, but they want me to personally sign the million dollar plus lease. Are you in? Cause I don't want to sign this and you guys quit on me. Cause I can't do this alone. And I've asked my team to take a night to think about it and come back to me. And I said, just tell me the truth. Cause I know this is a sinking ship, but I need you to write it. And if you're not here, then let's just let it die. And I need you. And so then they came back the next day and they all basically said there were eight, uh, uh, there were a lot uh, 11 of them, and 10 of the 11 said yes, one said no, and they opted out. And out of those 10, eight of them are still with me today, Wow. 20 years That's... later. And that was the moment that I knew that I believed, and I had to go to my, search my soul and say, am I really going to put everything on the line? And this is where you differentiate between entrepreneurs, frankly, where they really put everything on the line because my option B, my plan B, going back to being a lawyer, was not there. So I think when life, when you don't have a plan B, then plan A looks a lot better. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for sure for so sure. that was kind of the moment that i knew that we were all in i was all in and we were not going to fail that's amazing so so then obviously this is a turning point you guys turned this thing around how much money did you guys say ended up raising before you went public so this is an amazing story almost we didn't raise any more money so that was it so then you took the company public and and we went from the 1.5 million i'll tell you a little inside scoop go ahead went from 1.5 million dollar revenue company raised 17 million blew through it all and now you know the story now 
And then that was in 2000. We raised our money in 2000. And, and then basically in 2001, actually, let me just, I should say this. We raised another million dollars from those investors, essentially. And this is all in 2000 and 2001. And then we didn't raise any more money because I would never be dependent on investor money again. Because it's like, if we can't build this damn business on our own without raising money and not being profitable, then we don't deserve to run a business because we already spent $17 million. Now, we were the bad news bears, you know, the first few innings because we blew it all and blew nothing. So then you go back to the basics. And this is where the culture of CBank got formed is we said, now we survived this. We're not going to get ourselves by spending ahead, by doing the kind of things that the dot-com, which all of us did really bad lessons um, and then just keep raising money and just funding it that way. We said we're going to raise our we're going to raise our money through our customers and get them to pay us. And so we did not raise money between 2001 and 2013 when we went public, except one time. And in 2011, we raised 136 million dollars. We told the, we told everyone to raise 136, which is true. But the reality is is that only a hundred thousand dollars of that went into our balance sheet. $135.9 million went to buying out the investors who invested in 2000. So the reality is we didn't raise any money since 2001 or 2000, essentially. Well, I'm sure that they, that was a turning point as well on your relationships because they went from chasing you to get their money back to chasing you to invite you for lunches and, well, and dinners. Well, what, right? what I'll tell you is, uh, you know, we gave that anyone who cashed out on 011, we raised, you know, money from NEA and Insight Venture Partners. Um, but when we raised money from them in 2011 and again, cashing out everyone, they got about a 10 or 11 X. If you waited two more years, we gave you a 45 X. So, so, um, which a lot of our investors did the patient ones who just gave us two or three more years, they were 45 X. And, um, so we, we did pretty good on giving returns for our people, but they believed in us. And I'll tell you, I got a lot of support from investors. They were asking about things and, you know, you got 130 investors, they're crawling all, you know, they're asking you how things are going when you have 135 of them. People think managing three, two or three venture venture people are hard. Imagine you know, managing 130 angel investors, and most of them are pretty aggressive because they're all CEOs themselves pretty much. But it all worked out and learned a lot of lessons on the way. Um, and you know, this near-death story is what built our culture where it is today. And that's why, frankly, um, nothing really scares us at CVent. Because when you live through a near-death, it's hard to scare you. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And and I guess, I guess, I mean, obviously, you take the company public, and then the um, the acquisition happens. So, so walk us through how make us be insiders of sure. how this acquisition, you know, started and, and, and sure. happened. So, so, look, that, that, let me just real quick, just when you're building the business, our culture is built between 2002 and 2004 or five, and then fast forward as we're growing, we just kind of incrementally grew and just, you know, just kept the basics. And so then, and we really believed in the company because we gave our heart and soul for it for obviously at that point before we sold about 18 you know 17 18 years so we go public in 13 things are going you know our things are going well for us you know there was a mini recession in 16 um if you recall that SaaS companies you know people started thinking we're gonna have a recession but basically we got approached we weren't looking to sell the company we got approached by a buyer which we're not allowed to say who it was a strategic buyer um it was a corporation and you know when you're a public company when someone puts a bid out for you it's real. And um, so they put a bid unsolicited. Um, and uh, and so then we're like, wow, we're, you know, we're in play. And we didn't actually, we turned it down. We weren't that interested. Then coincidentally, another player came in and gave us a bid, literally unsolicited again, coincidentally, within 30 days. And um, and then basically, then at that point, you have a process because you have two people. 
And then we said, okay, listen, we got to take this serious. We didn't have a banker at this point. And then we said, you know, we need to hire a banker because you got two bids and you got to kind of see it through because that's what you do. My fiduciary duty was what I wanted. It's what's best for the shareholders. And the prices they gave us were, you know, were, were 50% over our stock price, let's say roughly. And so that was interesting, but we still weren't that interested in selling. Maybe it was 40 or 50. I can't remember exactly now. But in the end, we then said, we're going to talk to a few people. So we circled a few people and we'd had relationships within a couple of weeks. We talked to some other players and we got a third bid. And frankly, when he got a fourth bid, but then the other two started getting like, if you don't make a decision, then we're going to pull out. So we have three bids. And in the end, we end up getting 70%. So we get we get a 70% um, 70 um, uh, uh, premium to our stock price, which has never happened since 2002. So in the last 15 years, no one's got such a high premium on a company valued at a billion or more. You got some, you know, Penny stocks that obviously can go for whatever, but if you're a billion dollars or more, no one's gotten a 70% premium in 15 years on any company in technology in the U.S. So th- it was kind of mind-blowing to get that premium. And I still weren't, wasn't sure I wanted to sell the company. As a matter of fact, we got the bid. We accepted it. We hadn't signed. We're in the middle of signing it. And then I meet with my what I call my personal board of directors, which is not just my board of directors, but my friends and some people. And I wasn't sure I wanted to sell. And I, and then frankly, look, I'll just tell you very candidly, a couple things happen. Number one, you don't want to be that guy or that gal that doesn't sell their company at such a high premium. You know, just at that time, again, the market has gone up a lot more on multiples, but back then that was a super high multiple and a, high, and a premium on our stock. And look, let's be clear. I was the largest shareholder of the company. So, you know, it was obviously going to set me for generational wealth and don't be that person to turn that down. That was one side. That you start looking at the risks of this and this, what this happens, and if we, you know, we're going to go into a recession and all this. And then the second thing that went through my head is I have a lot of passion for this, and I really like this, um, and I don't want to stop this. And so, in the end, my fiduciary duty was to get the highest price possible and to make the decision if we want to sell. When you get a seventy percent premium, it's hard to turn that down. And frankly, there's a little bit of fuse that you could get sued if you turn it down because people yeah. are like, "Are you crazy that you turn down the highest premium ever paid for a software company?" In the last 15 years. So that was a little bit. But in the end, my team said, you know, let's play this out. And in the end, the winning bidder was Vista Equity Partners. And what was great about that, and it ended up being, because you got to go with fiduciary duty. And I want to be clear with you that you got to go for your highest price and the most likely to close, let's say. And that, that was Vista. They were going to close. They were going to close in just a couple weeks where everyone else takes longer. And frankly, they committed to us in 24 hours, which is unheard of, or 40 hours. So not only did they have the highest price, they gave us the quickest to close. And then the last thing is, and the reason they knew this is because they owned our competitor and they were the largest player till we kind of became the largest player. So they knew how strong we were and they knew the space. That's why they closed in 40 hours, essentially. And um, and so then we, we went with them. But the last thing that was a silver lining on the cake is there was an option for us to run the company because they asked my team to run the company. Now, that wasn't driver why we sold it, but that was obviously icing on the cake because we could still continue running the business and take it private. And look, they love being private. A lot of positive. There's negatives, the stress. There's some things you obviously have to meet quarterly earnings, but to go private again and to keep swinging at the play, that's what, that's what we got the opportunity. So we did that. We went private. And I'll tell you an interesting stat on is that I don't think any company after it's now three years later, we, we sold, we, we, on April 15th, we signed a deal to be acquired three years later, basically almost today. Um, 
48 of my 50 top leaders are still with the company. All my leadership, all those top folks, and and 48 of the 50 are still with the company. If you took my the highest ranked people at Cvent. So and what was what was the value of the of the transaction? We, it was 1.65 billion. Okay. Um, which at the time, uh, you know, like I said, it was the highest premium paid, and um, you know, and so it was a, it was an excellent sale. Now, a couple things since we've been owned by Vista last year, we they owned 61 portfolio companies, but we were voted company of the year. Um, of you know their of their portfolio, we've been winning a lot of awards, so things have gone really well, and my team is stuck. So we think that it was a great outcome from our investors at the time. Now, all entrepreneurs regret selling their company when things are going so well. Frankly, we're we're now you know four thousand employees. When we sold, we were about eighteen hundred, so we've grown a lot in the last you know few years. Continue to go really well. So of course, I always tell Vista this: I you're lucky you bought us because if I I know what I know now. I wouldn't have sold the company because things are going really well. And so, so you, I, I told them I'm, I'm in a bad dilemma. I want things to go well because because I'm CEO of the company, and but then I'm always going to regret it because I'm like, man, if I hadn't sold the company. So I always remind them how cheap they got Cvent, even though at the time it appeared to be a lot. It's all perspective of when you sell the company. Well, <laughs> so, of course. I mean, it's always easier to to look back and and look on decisions. But look, at the end of the day. You had to do what was right for you at the moment, and then also the fiduciary for your investors. So, you know, at the end of the day, you can sleep at night, which is the most important thing. Yeah, and you know, look, it's funny. The lessons I learned in 2001 and my team learned in 2001 through four or five, which was our, you know, difficult years, we will always to this day tell you those four or five years is what made your culture and your core and nothing's more important than culture in the end. And culture means everything. Just, I mean, culture means how you do business, how you treat your employees, what kind of people you expect, the expectations, the the, the informal rules of engagement. You know, we have a, what we call the soul of Cvent, which we created seven rules, which is to make sure people don't forget what we learned and where we were near death experience and to memorialize that. So we we have these things, but though, but our culture and where we are today is absolutely no question because of those difficult times you went through and the, the, the lessons of resilience and the lessons of going to the basics and the lessons of don't violate rules of business, which means don't build a product for more than it costs you to sell or that you can sell it for. You know, it's all these rules that a lot of people, and you can do it for a few years, but you know, a lot of companies just raise money, raise money, and a few of them, certainly some of them make it, they get escape velocity, um, but the vast majority don't because- And, and on the lesson side, Reggie, Mm -hmm. I always ask uh, guests that I have on the show if they had the chance to go back in time, you know, especially knowing what you know now and what you have gone through, and you had the opportunity to speak with your younger self, with this yeah. Reggie that is uh, living at the parents' apart uh, house and, and thinking about launching this business and how to do it, what would be one piece of advice that you would have uh, been able to give yourself before launching a business and why? So I'm going to give you two. Can I give you two? Because I have like 47 lessons I've learned in my life, but also two is actually a compromise. And so the first lesson, uh, the first thing that for me that I learned is patience. Everything takes longer than you think. So we started the company in 99. In 2007, our valuation, or 2006 was our valuation was more than our the 17 million we raised because we had some tough terms. So it took us seven or eight years before we had literally our options were worth anything. And we were all working twice, like literally 70, 80 hour weeks, and we were taking half the salary that we should have been. 
So really sacrificing, and yet our options were nothing, but we just kept doing it. So patience and passion, it doesn't happen in two or three years for most companies. And real value for us was created after 10 years. Like our real value, so seven years, we had zero value from our options until seven years. And then really 10 years is what it took before we really got, you know, start, starting to crack, frankly make some wealth. So right. it takes a long time to do stuff. And we're frankly one of the most successful companies in the history of Washington, D.C. And that's imagine companies that aren't as successful. It just takes a long time. That's lesson one. Lesson number two is it's all about the team and the people, everything. I interviewed the first thousand employees. I probably interviewed probably 800 of them. I was the chief. That's what I used to spend my time on. You could always get customers, but it's hard to get good people. If you get a good person, they'll get you 100 customers. But you got to get a good team and far from your leaders and down. So, again, I focus you know, on, on people, recruiting, retention, because that's what drives our business. And technology, it's all about the people. That's because we had 500 companies that competed against us, 500. How did we become number one and created the most shareholder wealth by magnitudes? Is because our people were good and we focused on that. And I mean, people and culture. That's the probably the two lessons, patience and hire really good people. I so, love it. I, I love it, Reggie. So so what a, what a great time here. So Reggie, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I would say LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, so we can actually build a relation. So in my LinkedIn is Reggie Agarwal, and I'm probably the only Reggie Agarwal, and there are not many Indians by that name. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Reggie, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. All right. Well, thanks, Alejandro. I appreciate the interview and the questions. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.